Karen, can you present your patient? This lady is an 82-year-old with past medical history of hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. She doesn't seek a lot of medical care and had not had mammograms in many years prior to this diagnosis. She had noted a mass in the right upper outer quadrant of her breast about a year before she sought any medical evaluation. It became painful and was limiting her in her daily activities, which is what prompted her to seek care. She underwent a mammogram in November of 2007, which was suggestive of malignancy. She ultimately was found to have a 3.2 centimeter mass with multiple suspicious axillary nodes. She underwent an axillary node biopsy, which showed infiltrating ductal carcinoma, and ultimately had a mastectomy and axillary lymph node dissection in December of 2007. At that time, she was found to have a 5.1 centimeter moderately differentiated infiltrating ductal carcinoma. There was extensive angiolymphatic invasion. ER was positive at 80%, PR positive at 5%. HER2 was positive by fish testing. She had 32 of 32 lymph nodes removed were positive. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself? It sounds like maybe she knew there was a breast mass, but she didn't want to pursue it. Yeah, she lives in a rural part of upstate New York. She's about an hour probably away from my office, which is fairly rural. And she didn't really see physicians very often. She's widowed. She lives independently. She has a couple sisters with whom she's close who live nearby. She's very interested in maintaining her independence and being active and doing things around her house. When I first saw her, her main concern was after her surgery, when she'd be able to start shoveling snow again. So, Any comorbidities? Well, she had the hypertension, which was well-controlled on two agents. She was on atenolol and lisinopril. She had hypercholesterolemia, which was well-controlled with medication. I discovered on initially starting to work with her that she had osteoporosis, which had previously not been identified, and she'd not had a bone density test prior to that. In your initial discussions with her, what was kind of her emotional reaction to what's going on? She was very flat about things, you know, not too much reaction. And again, her questions were primarily focused on could she do various things with her arm? Would she be able to live independently? How long would she have to be there? How long was this appointment going to take if she got treated? How long would she have to stay in the office? Any experiences with or preconceived notions about chemotherapy? I think she had some preconceived notions that it would be very toxic and would make her sick. And again, she was concerned about it limiting her ability to live independently. So Peter, I guess at this point, we don't have adjuvant trastuzumab on the adjuvant online model, but what would you be thinking about in terms of numbers for an 82-year-old woman? Sounds like she's in quite good condition, not too much comorbidities in terms of her with 32 positive nodes, her risk of recurrence without therapy, and then different interventions that might lower that risk. Well, she's obviously extremely high risk. And you didn't mention any metastatic workup, but I assume something was done and it was negative. That was kind of interesting. She did have some metastatic workup. Her bone scan was negative. On CAT scan, she had a 2.2 centimeter mass on one kidney, which was felt to be more consistent with a renal primary rather than a metastasis from this malignancy. She had some tiny sub-centimeter things in her liver and MRI follow-up of that looked like they were cysts, but she did have this thing on the kidney. Well, she's going to have something like a 10% per year, actually initially higher than that, risk of recurrence, distant recurrence. So she's an enormous risk. And she's one of those cases where we don't have to argue about whether or not we need to do a sophisticated molecular biological test because we know just on the basis of 
her status that she's going to be one of those people that's certainly going to get adjuvant therapy. And the only question is, which options are you going to pick? Because she's certainly a candidate to get hormonal therapy. She's certainly a candidate, if she were younger, we would be certainly thinking about giving her chemotherapy without any question. And she's a candidate for trastuzumab being fish positive. She's one of those people that a lot of us are tempted to treat, maybe skip the chemotherapy and just give her trastuzumab. Although the setting in terms of adjuvant therapy and whether or not that's an effective strategy is still really open. And there's at least some evidence that perhaps the combination, that concurrent use of trastuzumab with chemotherapy is part of the magic of the trastuzumab and maybe non-concurrent use isn't as good. And so right now, as far as I'm aware, the indication for trastuzumab in adjuvant therapy still is that it's given, you know, as part of a program that includes chemotherapy. So those are the big pictures. Obviously, classically, if she were much younger, she would get chemotherapy, trastuzumab, and hormonal therapy. And the question is, for this person who doesn't want a lot of medical intervention and fussing around, how much will she accept and what can you justify? Part of this is kind of a numbers thing in terms of, you know, if she were 73, 77, now she's 82, 88. And, you know, that's one of the things about adjuvant. You really see how that changes the population. Well, you know, if you're a healthy 70-year-old in this country, you still have a 20% chance of dying within the next 10 years of competing mortality. By the time you're 80, I think the number must be somewhere around 50%. So she certainly got the standard comorbidities of an 80-year-old, and so she's got a lot of competing mortality. She's probably going to die of breast cancer, unfortunately, but certainly she faces other competing risks as well. And most of those she's taken pretty casually, although not completely casually if she's taking medicine for cholesterol and a couple different antihypertensives. So Amon, if this woman were to say to you, look, don't worry about me being 82. I want whatever therapy can reduce my risk of recurrence. What would you be thinking? I think the thing which is interesting is that this is an 82-year-old lady who has minimal comorbidities for her age. I would think that with 32 positive nodes, if you look at the risk of recurrence in the next five years, will be over 80 plus percent of these patients will develop recurrent disease. I don't think that she has any eminent comorbid situation which are going to cause the demise of this lady in the next five years. So the best attempt would be to try to prevent recurrence in this patient and in patient who is ER positive, HER2 positive, I think we have very effective strategies that we can reduce the risk of recurrence by close to 80%. Here is a lady who has an 80 plus percent chance of developing recurrent disease. And if we treat her, we can cut down that risk by 80%. So does that mean you'd give her chemo along? I would think that if she does not have, except for hypertension, you have evidence that if even she has some cardiac dysfunction, let's say on cardiac evaluation, you could still give a TCH type of combination. If she doesn't, I would use like a B31 type of approach in this patient, give her AC followed by paclitaxel with trastuzumab and give her a total of 52 weeks of trastuzumab. Same exact lady, but now she's 87. I think in 87, the thing is 
will be little different. Then I think if competing causes of death become much higher, which is going to cause the demise of the patient, being an ER positive patient, I think then possibility could be that you can treat her with an endocrine agent plus trastuzumab alone may be option which is untested. But we do it in selected patients without having any data. So it sounds also like, in general, you're oriented towards an anthracycline-containing regimen in patients, maybe in general, or just no positive disease right now with HER2-positive disease? I think anthracycline-based therapies are superior, and we cannot differentiate which subset of patients non-anthracycline-based therapies will be equal. All that data is retrospective and based on using TAPO-SUMRAS2 and all that information which is coming up. 20 years later, still we can't measure the estrogen receptor accurately in patients still. And those type of tests, there are 15 ways to measure it. We don't know what is the cutoff, which patient we should be giving anthracycline and not giving anthracycline. I think that is not at the present time. Only thing which we know that from the overview data and from individual trials, any time anthracycline-based therapies versus non-anthracycline-based therapies were compared, there is lower risk of recurrence with anthracycline-based therapy, and better outcome in survival. So where are you on this one, Peter? Well, I think we're very close to being able to identify patients who particularly benefit from chemotherapy. And there are a couple different lines of work that are pointing in that direction. I think we've always had some indication that that's the case. I mean, the story that ER-negative patients respond better to chemotherapy is one of those things that's been out there for 30 years. And there's a JAMA paper, you know, looking at a selected set of CLGB trials that sees that. But I think the stronger lines of evidence are along the lines of the molecular tests, the oncotype test, which in the two studies that's really looked at this question seems to be able to predict patients who particularly benefit from chemotherapy. And also a meta-analysis of HER2 studies It's a selected group of HER2 studies. Also suggests that HER2 predicts, in particular, patients who benefit by chemotherapy, in this case, anthracyclines versus non-anthracyclines. Both of those lines of evidence have some weakness. One of the weaknesses is that we really see particular benefit in patients who have high recurrence scores and or who are FISH positive. But what the uncertainty interval is about is about whether or not there's really no benefit in patients who are HER2 negative, no additional benefit of anthracyclines, or no benefit in patients who have low recurrence scores. And so that's the reason why you'll notice that almost all the guidelines say you'll gain particular benefit, and it's particularly a good idea to consider these therapies if a patient has the marker but they are silent on whether or not you should, the other side of the coin, which is that you shouldn't use those therapies if the marker falls in the other direction. I think the most important thing in the next cycle of the meta-analysis, and some of the work relating to this may be reported this year at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, is a look at uh, meta-analysis across all trials that have looked at this, not just the ones that have been published. 
to really evaluate how strong these markers are. Because, of course, there is positive publication bias, particularly for marker studies. What about the specific point that Amon's making? And I think maybe right now Amon's starting to become a little bit in the minority. If we look at investigators right now, we're seeing a big shift towards non-anthracyclines and HER2-positive tumors. The thinking there comes out of the BCRG trial where, quote, the benefits of the TCH looked about the same as the anthracycline docetaxel. Why expose the patient to the excess cardiac risk? What do you think about that argument? I think that that argument is a strong argument. The only thing that's missing in the BCRIG trial is the fact that they don't have an arm with a non-anthracycline regimen, plus or minus trastuzumab, although the patients appear to do as well with the combination. So it's inferred that they're benefiting more and the trastuzumab has to be added. But I think that certainly in an 80-year-old, one of the pieces of work that I most like that came out of MD Anderson was work done by Sharon Giordano, who synthesized results of Medicare database, you know, in terms of chemotherapy and then whether or not there was additional information about cardiac failure. And basically, it suggests that in the general population, anthracyclines do carry long-term risks for patients. And I think that we would all like to actually move away from anthracyclines because of their many, many problems. I think we're at the cusp of doing that. And I think that people fall on both sides of the cusp. So can you follow up with what happened with the patient? Yeah, so I had a lot of these same thoughts that were expressed by Drs. Buzdar and Rabdin. I talked to the patient about taking chemotherapy with trastuzumab, and I did recommend TCH, the docetaxel carboplatin trastuzumab regimen. I also spoke with her at the time as part of the U.S. Oncology Network. We had a protocol that was looking at the other TC, the taxotere cytoxan with Herceptin. I spoke with her about those two options, and she was pretty definitive that she did not want any kind of chemotherapy. And then I even spoke with her about the absence of direct data, but I even spoke with her about doing a very brief course of chemoherceptin, such as, you know, the first part of the FinHer trial, you know, would she take nine weeks of vinorelbine and herceptin? And she was opposed to any of that. I also tried to, given the geographic area where I am, I tried to get her to go see Dr. Muss for a second opinion, who's fairly nearby, and she felt she was unable to travel that far. I spoke with him on the phone, though, about her case, and he felt similarly about trying the TCH type of regimen. Ultimately, she ended up declining any type of chemotherapy. She was willing to take Herceptin, so I ended up putting her on Herceptin and Letrozole. So, Aman, would you have done the same thing, or you would have not used Trastuzumab? No, I think the thing is that Trastuzumab, as it was used in her trial, that it did show reduction in the risk of recurrence and improvement in survival. We don't know whether patients who never gotten chemotherapy, whether the same type of benefit would be there. I think it is better at least to offer the therapy even though we don't have data. And I think there is urgent need to do a trial in patients who are ER positive and also HER2 new positive. Whether we can leave the chemotherapy and use the two targets which are amplified, whether the therapy directed against those two targets will be of same value and chemotherapy will play a very minimal role in that subset of patients. It's interesting, the letrozole, which I think is a no-brainer largely because of 
This is a patient in this age group, the tamoxifen, you really begin to see a lot more stroke and things like that. One of the things I'm going to be most interested in that's coming up over the next year, the results from additional trials about bisphosphonates, because obviously you're going to be treating her with a bisphosphonate. And if some of the results hold up, that could have as big an impact as these other modalities, which would be quite a nice thing to see. And so I think that that's, again, something that right now is on rather thin data. But there are a number of trials that are going to report not too long from now that may change our standard of care. Where is this patient right now? She's doing okay. She started therapy in late January. She's really not had any toxicity that she's reported from either the AI or the trastuzumab. Her ejection fraction's coming down a little bit, but remains in a normal range, and she's asymptomatic. She's followed by a urologist for this kidney issue, which looks pretty much stable. At one point, she had a CAT scan to reevaluate the kidney lesion and was noted to have some mediastinal adenopathy, which appeared new compared to her original CAT scan in January, but it was negative on PET scan. She saw a pulmonologist and was offered a bronchoscopy because some of these nodes look potentially accessible by bronchoscopy. And Let me guess, she, she declined. <laughs> <laughs> she declined, and actually the pulmonologist wasn't too suspicious that they looked malignant, and I think sort of further dissuaded her from pursuing anything further in terms of that workup. But she continues to feel very well, continues to live independently. She did have some chest wall abnormalities that looked a bit odd after her radiation. A couple months after she finished radiation, her her chest wall was getting redder and more blotchy looking and things. And she had multiple biopsies of that done, which were benign and just showed radiation-related changes. So that ended up, fortunately, turning out well for her. So she's had these little blips in the road, but basically feels well and doing pretty well with therapy. What about the choice of AI in the adjuvant setting, particularly the choice between letrozole and anastrozole? This woman got letrozole. Is that normally the AI you use, or how do you determine which one you use? I guess in her, my thought process was that I knew that there was some data suggesting that letrozole can lower the estrogen levels potentially more than other AIs, and in the absence of taking chemotherapy and feeling that I wanted to be as aggressive with her as she would allow me to be. And again, I know there's some unknowns to that, but that was just kind of my thinking at that time. What do we know about that, Amman? I think if you look at the indirect data from the DIG-98 and the ATAC trial, proportional reduction and absolute reductions are very similar. So I think indirect evidence that 3-aromatase inhibitor efficacy is very similar. There may be differences in the safety, but again, we don't have any data of head-on comparison of the safety signal, whether there is any difference or not. And some of the studies are now ongoing where these aromatase inhibitors are being compared one against the other, and those will answer that question. Any new strategies in endocrine therapy that are being looked at that you think have some promise for the future? I think there is preclinical data to suggest that some of these pure anti-estrogen or estrogen receptor down regulator like fulvostrant in experimental system in estrogen-deprived environment, that there is significant synergies in that And there are a couple of studies which are ongoing in metastatic setting to see that giving aromatase inhibitor with fulvostrant will either increase the response rate, 
prolong the control of disease or both. If that is positive, I think that might be a lead and support of the preclinical data, and maybe then it needs to be looked at it in adjuvant setting. Those trials are still ongoing. One trial is ongoing in SWAG. It is still occurring right. patients. Right. And I think the European trial, which is also maybe two-thirds are more close to the accrual. Sophia? Mm-hmm. Trial, yeah. But right now we don't have any data. I think if those data are positive, then it will be sensible to look at it in adjuvant setting. Dr. Merchant? If this was a young patient, how long would you continue AI? Suppose she refuses I think if she was young or old, right now, our approach at MD Anderson is that we do it for five years if you start up front. I think a question of longer duration are being addressed, and B42 is the best study in which right now that question is being addressed. And we have that trial open at MD Anderson, and patients who are finishing and getting to that point, we offer them the opportunity to be part of that, where the question is being addressed is whether continuing aromatase inhibitor beyond five years would reduce the further risk of recurrence and what would be the safety data at that point. But again, 32 positive nodes off study. Would you continue or not? I would say that most of the differences and the peak differences are in the first three to five years. After five years, patient with a 10 positive node versus patient who has two positive nodes, those curves come together and their hazard rate is very similar at that point. Peter, do you agree with that? Not entirely. They're similar, but there's still higher risk for the patients who started out. The most dramatic differences are early on. The thing that strikes me is that when we've looked at hormonal therapy, extension of hormonal therapy seems to benefit patients. And so the ATLAS trial, for instance, although it didn't show a big benefit of you know longer versus shorter tamoxifen, with most of the patients on that trial shorter being five years, it did show, actually, a trend toward better outcome. And, of course, the Canadian study looking at aromatase inhibitors after tamoxifen suggests additional benefit. Also, one of the things, and I've been recently looking at the epidemiologic data, is that it's very striking that estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer keeps on recurring and patients keep dying into the second decade. And we've all seen patients come back to celebrate their 10-year anniversary only to be diagnosed on that visit as having a recurrence. So I think the idea of protracted treatment of patients is something that there's uncertainty about, and these trials may address it definitively. But my philosophy about this is a lot like the philosophy where we were 15 years ago with tamoxifen, when we had no data about extension of tamoxifen. And at that time, what I told patients were the ones that perceived themselves at very high risk in the beginning were very reluctant to stop tamoxifen. And there was an absence of definitive data. And so I told them that the indication was for five years, and the general recommendations were to stop at five years, but that there were people that continued on, and there were clinical trials going on addressing these issues, which means that it's ethical to consider giving it for longer And so I think that most patients chose to stop the tamoxifen back then, and I think most patients choose to stop the aromatase inhibitors today. But I think for some, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about, which are not necessarily indications, I think you can make a strong case for some patients, particularly those at high risk for continuing an aromatase inhibitor beyond five years. And other thing which I think, just for completeness sake, even though the ATLAS and ATOM trials show some marginal improvement in disease-free survival, the data which he did not show 
absolute survival, there was increased death rate from continuing to moxifen beyond five years, which was significant, which was an absolute 1.7% increased risk in death from thromboembolic complications, endometrial cancer, and other comorbid situations which were enhanced by continuing exposure to anti-estrogens beyond five years. I have to say one thing about that, and that was that I've never seen that data, but it was certainly conspicuously absent from the presentation of the ATLAS trial because, of course, one of the things the NSABP study B14 suggested was that there was increased toxicity for tamoxifen out into that additional period of time. This trial was done in the large, fast mode, simple. It was done all over the world, had a huge number of patients. The total number of pages of the protocol was four pages. It was pretty amazing. And there was no toxicity reporting until the endpoint. And so I think that one of the things that's a deficiency of that trial, one of the reasons why I think he didn't discuss toxicity was because he really didn't have very reliable data about it. But also the thing is that you have to keep in mind that ATLAS and ATOM trial, more than half of the patient receptor information is lacking. So the question is that whether that slight improvement in the disease-free interval is because the patients who are randomized to continued therapy have a different prognosis or is it the effect of therapy? So I think that studies which were actually carried out, very clean studies, NSABP study and that Scottish trial, which are both negative. And these studies... It is, I think, amazing that we want to buy the data which is very questionable, which fits our bias, and we want to reject the data which is the most clean and most rigorously done under controlled environment. Although I will say that having participated in the overview meta-analysis and been there with the NSABP statisticians, and the argument about whether or not ATLAS was ethical to conduct because, of course, B14 points in the other direction, They were never opponents of the study. They felt that the confidence interval for their study was large and that it didn't rule out a benefit. And so that's the reason why the trial was conducted. It was because although these individual trials had shown a trend toward no improvement or could be interpreted as no, there was still a considerable uncertainty, and that's the reason why the trial went forward. So I am interested in seeing the complete reporting of the trial Actually, I think that the amazing thing about hormonal therapy and the hormonal status of breast cancer is that resistance isn't a matter of losing the estrogen receptor and that patients who have responded well in the past to hormonal therapy can go on and respond to another hormonal therapy. So that I think there's rationale to think that protracted use of hormonal therapies may be a good idea. I think also, Amon, what I've heard people react to the Atlas and Adam data is more of kind of evidence favoring the strategy of long-term therapy, not so much practically about continuing tamoxifen, because most people are using AIs. I mean, maybe a premenopausal patient who's still menstruating at five years that could be out on the table. Would either of you offer continuation of tamoxifen to a woman like that, Amon? No, not at all. Because I think the data is very weak, very questionable and very poorly conducted studies. I do not believe that Atom and Atlas studies contributed anything better to our understanding because the quality of data is very poor. Why don't you just say what you think, Amon? I just said. (laughs) (laughs) 